Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. And then all of a sudden I realized that like, I had never defined what I wanted on my own terms. And that started to get me thinking, it's like, how many of our goals that we're working towards are actually defined by us from our lived experience? Like things that we know add value to our lives, things that we know make us curious and engage us. And for me, 
the answer was not much, you know, like I, I, I had inherited my goals from, if you will, the media, from my culture. And in some cases, sure, that's fine. But, you know, it's like, you know, get a million dollars or even worse, like when you're rich, you'll be happy, right? It's like, okay, let's play that out for a second. How do you define rich, right? What, what amount of money is that? What freedom does it buy you? Exactly. And when you start thinking about things that way, they start seeming kind of impossible, right? I think the wealthiest people I know worry about money more than anyone else that I know. So like, when does that stop? You know, it's like when you buy a house, okay, cool. Now I have a house. I need a bigger house or this house has problems or I don't want to live here anymore. You know, like the, the, these kind of goals are, are, I don't know, we have these cookie cutter ideas of what happiness is. And I found that that was very dangerous because we spend so much time working towards these goals just to find them to be empty. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ryder, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I have known about your work for quite some time, and I was the fortunate beneficiary of your publicist who sent me a copy of your new book, The Bullet Journal Method, which, uh, as I mentioned before we hit record here, I had underlined and highlighted endlessly and ended up ordering another moleskin just to put the ideas into action because I found it that valuable um, and that insightful. But before we get into everything that you're doing with the bullet journal method, uh, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Well, my parents were both teachers originally. Uh, my mother was a middle school art teacher and my father was an English teacher um, until he finally was able to start writing, which he did part-time, and then eventually became his full-time career. So he's an author. He's written about 16 published works. Um, I guess that I'm no surprise. Like when I went to college, I ended up studying art and creative writing. There's the two things that always really appealed to me, I guess, overall, the idea of structuring narratives, specifically integrating both visual as well as written um, elements always really appealed to me. Um, mm -hmm. so eventually I guess what happens when you combine the visual and the written, I feel like that that's basically what design is in many ways, right? Where you're trying to tell a story with images. And I would say that my entire career that I've been a designer, um, maybe not as artistic, if you will. Again, I don't even know if that's the right term, but essentially I always try to create things that tell a story, even if it's like a banking app, you know, like there's a narrative involved there. How do you help communicate an idea or a trajectory to someone so they can do whatever they're trying to do, right? You need, uh -huh. It has to be real-time education. So for me, that's kind of what, um, if I were to guess, I would say that's, that's what their influence had on me. And, yeah. um, yeah, I guess I never, I never anticipated teaching anything because I was around teachers for so much. And I also struggled in school for so long that it's interesting that I find myself here trying to help others understand these things that I've found to be really valuable, which I feel is kind of what a teacher is. Yeah. Um, I wonder with uh, a mother who's uh, an art teacher and, and your dad being the person is what kinds of narratives did they pass on to you about pursuing a creative career? Uh, because yeah, I mean, probably this is very different. I'd imagine than the kind of narrative that I inherited with Indian parents, where it was always do something very practical that will lead to a steady paycheck and a good job. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think one thing that's interesting is that though both of my parents are very accomplished in their disciplines. Both of them struggled in their disciplines as well. Like my father had a lot of challenges going through school, but at the end he figured out what it was that he really liked to do and figured out a way to work on it. Um, and my mother, 
it's interesting, I guess from both of them, it's just like a work ethic, right? Figure out what you want to do and then get to work. I think that was one of the things. But another thing is that I grew up with learning disabilities. So like a lot of my early scholastic career was, was fraught with different challenges and you get used to failing and being the last and getting things wrong a lot. And I think that that must be a very challenging thing for parents to witness, especially back then, you know, I was diagnosed with ADD. And when, when I was diagnosed, it wasn't very well understood. So I didn't have a lot of resources available, but they were teachers. So they did the best they could. And I think one thing they instilled in me, which was a much more helpful narrative was like, do the best you can, but make sure that it is the best that you can. Right. And, and that somehow put the onus on me and gave me the responsibility. They didn't want me to be the best period. They wanted me to be the best I could be. So I had to figure out what that meant. And that took a very long time. And I think going from the last into the class to where I am today, like that, that, story unfolded by incremental improvement and that's something that i focus on till this day i feel like i i also had friends who suffered a lot because their parents are always like you have to be the best in class you have to have a's and and some of them were able to do that but sometimes they would encounter subject matter that they just couldn't wrap their mind around you know and and that that became a source of major anxiety and frustration. So may, maybe in that sense, the narrative that I was working towards was just like, okay, you may not be good, but at least you can improve. There's always there's always room for improvement, and there's a very large distance between being the worst and being the best. And I think that that space needs to be acknowledged more often in, in my own career and having mentored different people and everything. It's like a lot of people compare their, you know, day one with day 100 and people have different skills and different abilities. And I found it much more practical when I started comparing myself to my previous self and like setting the bar there. Hmm. So your parents being teachers, they passed on clearly what is a much healthier narrative uh, to you. Uh, given that your parents are teachers, why do you think that this is not a more predominant narrative in our education system? That's a good question. I, I think that, I mean, we have grades for a reason, right? And if, if, if there's, there's, they're there to make people work towards preset goals and i mean like i would say that that in one way is fundamentally flawed in its own right because who gauges somebody else's ability perfectly right of course you can take a math test right and if you don't do well then you didn't know the answers to the math test i'm sure that makes sense but are the questions right are they really a perfect gauge of somebody's ability but at the same time there has to be some gauge there has to be something. So I think when you start setting these, I guess, these goals, right? Like grades are in some way a way to measure somebody's ability, but also something to strive for. Then when you don't achieve your goal or somebody's falling short of a goal, then they're judged. And people want to have be judged as little as possible. They want to be the best. They know that an A is possible. So if you're not getting an A, it means you're not as good as those who are. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's designed to create both competition as well as some basic form, basic way to judge people's abilities. But I, I, in my own experience, I found that to be a very imperfect model, I guess. But there has to be some model. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you struggled scholastically, learning challenges, ADD. Uh, I can relate to the ADD thing, even though mine was undiagnosed until I was like 28, 29. Uh, what were the incremental changes that allowed you to overcome that? Because clearly, I mean, I read this book and I, I thought to myself, okay, this took some serious deep work. This took real focus because it's so beautifully written. So what are the things that allowed you to, to overcome those limitations? It's not one thing. I mean, it's a lifetime of figuring out how to get a little bit better at something. 
when when you're when you were in my position, people would try to like shove these answers and these solutions down my throat. And a lot of times, like take notes like this and study longer and study harder. And like these things would just like bounce off me, right? And they, they produced even more anxiety. But um, I think I think there was a moment in school where something changed. I noticed that when I would doodle in class, I would be able to hear the teacher better. I would actually be able to understand what was being communicated to me. And, you know, though it may seem obvious that it's hard to pay attention to something that doesn't interest you, for me, it seemed next to impossible. Like I'd sit there and look at the teacher and the dude speaking, and I just could not follow what they were saying if I wasn't interested in the subject matter. But, you know, as a student, you don't really have an option just not to pay attention indefinitely. That has serious consequences, as it did for me all the time. But I noticed that when, you know, so I kind of resigned to just start drawing in class because, like, what, what's the difference? I might as well enjoy myself. But I just happened to realize that all of a sudden it was much easier for me to pay attention when that part of my mind was occupied, like the grasping part of my mind. But the thing is... Obviously, when a teacher is looking into a class and they see somebody doodling, they immediately take it for granted that they're spacing out and not paying attention. So I would be reprimanded quite frequently by teachers who didn't understand what was happening. So I tried to pretend like I was taking notes. And then when the teacher would look away, I'd go back to doodling. And then, you know, I would be able to write down the things that started to make sense to me until one day a teacher figured out what was going on. And she pulled me aside and she said, "Um, it's interesting. When you draw, you're listening, but when you're looking at me, you're not paying attention. You know, that good for you for figuring that out. You know, and then it dawned on me, it's like, huh, I did figure this out. I actually solved one of my own challenges, or at least improved my situation substantially. And that's a pretty profound thing for a child to realize that they can actually solve their own issues you know when, when you're a kid you're always looking to the tall folks for answers you ask your parents your teachers older siblings it never really occurs to you that you actually have it within you to solve a problem on your own and here i was struggling figuring out something that did work and all of a sudden was validated by an adult and like that's interesting if i can solve this challenge what else can i solve and that started my mind thinking that way and it was also really interesting and rewarding. And even though I didn't turn into a stellar student by any imagination, like I got significantly better. Not everything I tried worked, right? I would say most of the things I tried didn't work, but some things did, some things stuck. And most of those things are what ended up being in the bullet journal today. Mm-hmm. So you alluded earlier to uh, your father struggling with his career and even the fact that you struggled, not just scholastically, but I know from having read the book, there were early struggles career-wise. What were they and and how did you get past them? (laughs) Well, I would say the the first major struggle was when I graduated from college. Um, I'd found my footing creatively. Like I was doing well in both of my majors. And I felt like I actually had talent and ability and I had a inflated sense of self. Um, And I also got the internship of my dreams working for this company that was working on movie titles, which was at the time something I really wanted to do. It's like people were starting to do really interesting things before movie and after movie, integrating both typography and video and photography and these like micro films that set things up. And I really liked that. There's something interesting about it. I had wanted to go into music videos when I went into college, but by the time I graduated, they had dried it up and there wasn't really a market for them. So I was doing well in school, you know, and I had the internship of my dreams and then I moved to New York and everything I had moved in this like terrible little basement apartment. And I called up and said, hey, I'm here. You know, when do you want me to begin and everything? And they said, oh, didn't anybody call you? (laughs) And then like my heart just sank. And like the year before was 9-11 and the company had downsized due to the economy and nobody had bothered to call me. So here I was like another unemployed art student in New York with no job and very little savings. 
So basically the next step was just applying for jobs as a full-time job. And that was, that was incredibly painful um, just because I started with jobs that seemed like, you know, they deserved me, right, at that point. Because I was, you know, this kid who was really creative and talented and all this stuff. And, like, nobody cared. Nobody cared. Not to mention the fact that, like, I was competing with people who were so much more talented than I was and even younger. And, like, so that was a real reality check. The ego went right out the window. Um, And then, like, I just started applying for any job I could possibly find. And that took about, I don't know, six to eight months, right? Um, That's a long time not to have work and have very little money living in New York. And also being in New York, New York itself is a, can be a very rough place. And um, while I was applying for jobs, our apartment flooded. And again, I was in a basement apartment. So one day I woke up. And like the floor was moving and I'm like, what? And so as my eyes focused, I realized the floor wasn't moving, was underwater and floating on the top of the water was my portfolio. The thing that I was actually trying to get jobs with, right? And then back then people didn't really have digital portfolios. Everything was printed out and really pristine. You they bought like really beautiful portfolios to make an impression and it was just all gone instantly. And my computer was submerged, so all the backup files were also all gone. So not only was I not having any luck with my work in its best possible condition, now I had absolutely nothing to show for myself. And so that day I lost pretty much everything I owned and became homeless more or less because the landlord couldn't have cared less. And so I had to move out because mold instantly started growing in the apartment. And luckily I had a couple friends that I could you know, crash on their couch. And eventually I found this job working at a publishing company just because it was the first job that was offered to me. And that was it. That was the only reason I took it. And it was designing order forms, lists of order forms with hundreds of thousands of entries. And it was absolutely miserable. It was absolutely miserable. And I would say about 10 months into it, I had to figure out how to get out of there. So I started applying for jobs again and the same problem. It's like, you're not qualified enough. You know, you don't have any experience, all these things. I'm like, okay, I have to make myself more valuable. You know, that, that, that was, that was a hard realization to make, especially coming off, you know, college where, you know, I was, I was I was good. I was considered good, you know, and here in this market, I wasn't, I was just somebody else. So I'm like, how can I make myself more valuable? What is it that I'm actually interested in? And I realized that I was paying more and more attention to people designing websites. They were using web technology and this is very early web technology when it was becoming more popularized, I guess, like artists were using it and small businesses were using it. It was becoming a lot more accessible. So I was like, Hmm, this is really interesting. And people using mixed media, photography, video and writing. And it was kind of the wild west of creativity in some ways. And it was like super janky, but it was something new and interesting and interactive, which I really liked. So I was like, why don't I learn how to design websites? That seems like a good idea. That's something that I'm interested in. I feel like this tech, this, this is something that's not going to go away. And I could totally appreciate putting my work online as well, you know, far away from floods and random acts of God and so forth. So I started going to night classes actually at SVA to learn how to design websites. And then I found people who needed websites. And luckily there are more and more people who were looking for websites and I started building websites for people and getting better at it, getting more jobs until I was eventually able to leave this terrible publishing job that I had. And I focused on that. Um, so that's where I really started to become a web designer, eventually a product designer. And uh, yeah, I started building my career piece by piece and got better and better jobs, better positions, more experience. I mean, I was ahead of the curve back then. So that was really helpful. Um, yeah. And eventually I just ended up designing systems more or less. That's, that's what I've done for the last, I guess, 12, 15 years until I went bullet journal full time. Yeah. 
Why do you think some people don't recover uh, in moments like that the way you did? Like, why do they not bounce back? I mean, there's a host of reasons, right? I think that sometimes people can just lose hope. You know, that, that they can just be absolutely devastated by what happens to them. Um, people don't know what to do next or what to try next. Sometimes luck is a major issue in that as well, right? Like some people can have really, really bad luck and that can last a really long time. I don't know. I, I guess for me, I think what, what, what has always persevered is I've been stubborn, right? Like I, I've known from a very early age that no matter how bad things are, you always have a choice. And the choice is how you respond to what's happening to you. And, you know, I, I guess I've always tried to train myself to be curious about my misfortune in some ways. Not like, why did this happen to me? But it's like, what will I do now, given the circumstances? And not existentially, but very methodically. Okay, so I, like, I lost all my stuff. You know, I don't have work anymore. I need to find a place. That's the first thing. Like, I need to have a place to sleep. You know, call friends. Great. Call friends. One has an internet connection. Stay with him. Take your laptop out. Do more work. Who do you know? Who can you ask favors for? You know, there's a, <laughs> I was used to being wrong and like humiliated so often, like growing up and especially, you know, getting things wrong that like the idea of asking people for help wasn't necessarily something foreign to me. And like, once you get over your pride, that was helpful. Because people love to help, you know, people like to feel helpful. It's, it's us that usually has a problem accepting that help. So I don't know, you just, I make myself vulnerable and try to be smart about what happens. And with a little bit of luck, you know, it's, it's not like I went from the flood into a dream job. I went from the flood into a different kind of hell. <laughs> and very slowly, I like worked my way out of it, you know, and even when I went even when I left that job, it wasn't like all of a sudden things were flush, you know, like I was a freelance web designer designing sites for like, you know, 1200 bucks, you know, living in New York, that's not going to get you very far. So I'd augment that by cater waitering as well. And over time, I guess one thing that has helped me a lot is I started setting less and less expectations. Um, it's like, I'm not doing this for this inevitable goal or purpose i'm doing this because it matters to me right now like what matters now what can i do to you know, improve the situation what small thing can i do and over time those tiny little things add up there's never and i shouldn't say never very rarely in life have i ever experienced somebody handing me a total get out of jail free card nothing has solved all my problems it's been promised a lot, but I've never seen that to be true. For me, it's always been like, what can I do right now to make things a little bit better? And over time, things do get better. And when they get worse, you kind of, you have, you have some experience of dealing with that. It doesn't necessarily make it any easier, but it does give you a, a map to kind of surface again, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and get into the book. And, and where I want to start is, is probably with what was one of my absolute favorite quotes from the book, which was, our motivations are heavily informed by the media. Our social feeds are populated by endless images of wealth, travel, power, relaxation, beauty, pleasure, and Hollywood love. This virtual runoff perpetually seeps into our consciousness, polluting our sense of reality and self-worth every time we go online. We compare our lives to these largely artificial constructs and structure our plans accordingly, hoping to eventually afford a golden ticket to these misleading fantasies. Uh, I love one. I love that it was so beautifully written. But I wonder why you, you set the book. I mean, that was put very early in the book. And I, from just from reading this book, I, I figured that everything that you've done with this book is a very intentional choice. Why was that put at the beginning? And how do we deal with this? Uh, because it is it is very much a reality of the world that we live in today. Sure. I think I put it into the beginning because I kind of want to redefine what goal setting can be, right? In my own experience, especially early on in my career as a product designer, people gave me my goals. I inherited my goals from the world around me. You're going to be happy when you start a company. You're going to be happy when you get this money. You're going to be happy when X, Y, Z, you know, get the house, 
you know, book the vacation and all these things. And over and over and over again, that wasn't true. It just wasn't true. Um, and I think one, one of the many times, but a really burning example is I had a startup. This is way before Bull Eternal where me and this other guy came up with this product. We spent two years working on it, like nights and weekends all the time. I had a full-time job. So this was the second, you know, this is the side hustle, if you will. And I like gave it everything, you know, slept under the table, pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the real startup life. And I'd worked for a bunch of starts at this time. We were doing everything that we were told would afford us what we wanted. And it wasn't true. We launched the company and like a week later, I walked into the office and I just looked around like, I don't care. Like none of this really matters to me. Right. And then all of a sudden, like, why? And then all of a sudden I realized that like I had never defined what I wanted on my own terms. And that started to get me thinking. It's like, how many of our goals that we're working towards are actually defined by us from our lived experience? Like things that we know add value to our lives, things that we know make us curious and engage us. And for me, the answer was not much. You know, like I I, I had inherited my goals from if you will, the media from my culture. And in some cases, sure, that's fine. But, you know, it's like, you know, get a million dollars or even worse, like when you're rich, you'll be happy, right? It's like, okay, let's play that out for a second. How do you define rich, right? What, what amount of money is that? What freedom does it buy you exactly? And when you start thinking about things that way, they start seeming kind of impossible, Right. I think the wealthiest people I know worry about money more than anyone else that I know. So like, when does that stop? You know, it's like when you buy a house, okay, cool. Now I have a house. I need a bigger house or this house has problems or I don't want to live here anymore. You know, like the, they, these kind of goals are, are, you know, we have these cookie cutter ideas of what happiness is. And I found that that was very dangerous because we spend so much time working towards these goals just to find them to be empty. So I put on, uh, I bring this up very early in the book because most of the people that I talk to have encountered this in some way, or if they haven't encountered, when I start to talk to them about it, like you start seeing their eyebrows raising onto their foreheads when they realize like, what, when was the last time you asked yourself what you actually wanted and why do you want those things? Which is the more important question, right? Because somebody's like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. Okay, Why? Uh, because it will make me happy. And like, I feel like those two things are sold all day long, but really falls apart in reality. On the one hand, you know, other people's goals are not your goals. What makes other people happy or fulfilled most likely won't really do the same thing for you. You have to define that on your own. So the next question becomes, how do you define goals properly? And that's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and curious about. And that's what I try to explore in the book. And like the first, and I think most important realization I make, like the goal can't be to be happy. Like how do you define happiness? What's the longest you've ever been happy for? You know, like I feel like this idea of happiness is something that's easily said, but is, is, truly a, a, a an impossible impossible fantasy in some ways like i've never met anybody who's just happy you know no matter how much they've achieved how good they are as a person how good they're how well natured they are nobody is just happy full stop so you're going to do all of these things to hit these goals that may or may not line up with something that matters to you to be happy so what happens, what, what do we have instead of happiness, right? Like happiness is an emotion. It comes and it goes. Like that's, that's the reality that I know. Sometimes things are good. Sometimes things are bad. Sometimes the things that I believe will make me happy don't. Sometimes random things make me happy. But the only consistent thing is that it always goes away, right? It always goes away. So the idea of actually shooting for this goal of being happy, just seemed misguided. There had, truly, there had to be something we can actually reach for, something we can set our goals for. And that's really where I try to set up 
an alternative route in the book. And for me, it's about figuring out what you find to be meaningful in your life. Like those are the goals that I feel are worth pursuing. Things that won't necessarily make you happy, but things that you believe are truly worth your time and energy. Things that add value to your life. Yeah. I think the thing that was really interesting to me as, as I was going through the goal section, and we'll start getting into tactical aspects of this in a bit more detail, but I, I remember reading a section about money and how much money you wanted. And then I, I kind of thought about the million dollar goal that you know so many people have, like oh, seven figures. And I, I kind of thought it through. I was like, well, what am I going to spend this money on? And then I made a list. I was like, okay, a season pass for snowboarding, a bit of equipment and some flights. It was like, don't need a million dollars for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. And when I went through that, exercise as well. I'm like, okay, a million dollars is empty because it applies to nothing, right? Just the number. But like, like you going through that exercise, what do you want to have and why? How much money will I require? Maybe it's a million dollars. And if it's a million dollars, at least now all of a sudden it's meaningful. Like you transform this vague idea, this notion into something that's like a concrete value add to your life. Well, let's do this. Let's actually get into the entire idea of, you know, doing a bullet journal. One, how did you even come up with this concept? I mean, you're effectively the inventor of this concept. Uh, that that so what led to this idea? Well, I mean, it, it was never designed to be complete. I would say that's the first thing. It was never designed to be shared. First of all, I think that's what's important to realize. Like the bullet journal is essentially a toolkit that I designed for the way that my own mind worked. And, you know, maybe it's because of my parents, but I was like helplessly creative. I like to draw, I like to write, you know, I, I like to do a whole bunch of things. So I created this system that was very modular, right? So it could be a sketchbook, it could be this, it could be that. It was just designed for me to have all these different tools that I needed to become more organized and focused all in one place. But it took a very long time to get there. Like, and I had no goal in mind that there, there was, there's no expectation here. It was just this practice that I had organically brought into my life because I needed it. Like it exists because I needed it. I still need it today, you know, especially in writing this book. It's like bullet journal all day, <laughs> every day. And sometimes you're just like, okay, I need to, I need some distance. And even in those couple of days where I step away from it, it's like, I start feeling the edges fraying a little bit. And I, I'm reminded as to why I introduced it into my own life. Uh-huh. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, so uh, we'll get into some tactics, but there's something that you said, and I, I actually quoted you in, in one of my most recent pieces on Medium, where I wrote about the fact that I do all of my writing. I start all of my writing by hand, and I read physical books. Like I stopped reading Kindle books years ago, and I, it, you know, and you just kind of reinforced it when you said uh, the fact that we. That, that it takes longer to write things out by hand gives handwriting its cognitive edge. And you said, when we write by hand, we're forced to be more economical and strategic with our language, crafting notes in our own words. To do that, we have to listen more closely, think about the information, and essentially distill others' words and thoughts through our own neurological filtration system. Uh, I was wondering if you could expand on that for me and kind of talk about the power of, of why uh, people should actually... Uh, you know, make a case for analog in a world that is increasingly digital is where, where I'm going with this. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I think that, you know, a lot of people ask me digital or analog. And I think that the, the important thing to realize is I think it's digital and analog, not verses, right? Yeah. They're both just tools. And I think a tool should be judged by its ability to help you make progress towards whatever endeavor you've taxed yourself with. And for me, I found like, I love the digital space. I love using technology. I use it all the time. I designed it, you know, like I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I swore it off, but I found that the more and more I adopted new tech and I was, you know, a, a unapologetic early adopter. And sometimes I still am, but I did, I found that it didn't necessarily make me more productive Right. And, and the science bears this out in the studies that I had read, like our productivity has actually started to decline over the last couple of years, even though technology becomes more and more seamless and more and more powerful. So for me, the analog space is a way for me to disconnect and not be online. If being online all the time is making us less productive, then surely going offline offers a viable alternative. And in my case, I found that to be true. It's like we live in an age where we're constantly overwhelmed by media. You know, it follows us everywhere. There's a screen everywhere. You take it everywhere. People can't be bored anymore. You know, like you see that as soon as somebody sits down, like as you see it at restaurants, somebody goes to use the restroom, the other person immediately is on their phone. Like you can't wait three, four minutes just quietly sitting there because you're, you know, there's something more entertaining to do all of a sudden. And then we we're starting i feel like the more online we are the more we are connected with the world around us the more we're losing touch with the world within us right and i think that's really a dangerous thing to happen so for me the analog is that space you know like for example when you sit down with a productivity app right you can spend all day booking everything, getting everything organized, all this stuff. And next thing you know, you're like buying shoes, right? Like, how did that happen? You, you just, it's so seamless that, that distractions can so easily take you away from what you needed to do. 
not to mention the fact that you're spending all day getting organized and actually getting nothing done. And I felt like when I'm, when I'm writing in my notebook, I am no longer distracted. It's just me, a pen and paper, and that's it. And it's a place where I can actually digest my thoughts. I can actually process the things that are happening in my life. And I do it in a way where I'm not all of a sudden on a different website and, and, you know, on watching my fifth video on YouTube all of a sudden. It's just a place where I actually have to sit there. And at first that can be really uncomfortable, but all of a sudden interesting things start happening when you make a ritual out of it, the ritual of going offline just for a little bit. You know, I'm not saying turn off your internet or whatever. It's, it's more along the lines of like, just give yourself an opportunity to catch up and actually look at what it is that you're allowing into your life, be it your tasks, your responsibilities, you know, the people in your life, like that's a responsibility that I think is not talked about often. So when I, when I open my notebook, I, I take a moment just to be like, okay, here are the things I'm working on. Do they matter? Are they vital? What would happen if I never even did this thing? And all of a sudden I feel less overwhelmed because I'm taking many things off my list entirely, you know, and it allows me to just catch up and to think. And also writing by hand allows you to connect with your thoughts in a very different way. You're literally taking your thoughts and bringing them into the world for the first time. And by writing, because things are slower and quote unquote, take more time and energy, you're more careful about it. You know, it's, 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 it adds just enough friction for you to become more focused and present. And I think that that's something that is a luxury these days. Mm. Wow. Well, let's do this. Let's get into actually how to, uh, go through this system. And can you walk us through the system? I know the first concept that you talk about is rapid logging, and then you talk about the various logs. So can you give us an overview of the rapid logging concept and what each one of the various logs are? Sure. So I, I, I just want to take a step back a little bit just to kind of set the stage a little sure. bit. The, the bullet journal method is comprised of two major components, the system and the practice. The system is what more people will be familiar with. It's what you see on Instagram and Pinterest and so forth. And that really focuses on productivity. So the system can be seen as like a Lego set, essentially. It's uh, modular pieces where every one of the pieces is functions to serve a very specific purpose. And there are four major pieces or collections. Every piece or collection serves to collect related information. And the four main collections are the index, the daily log, the monthly log, and the future log. So the daily log is essentially the workhorse of the bullet journal. And what you use the daily log for is to just declutter your mind. And you do this through a process called rapid logging. Rapid logging essentially is just a, a very systematic way of capturing your thoughts through bulleted lists and those so each thought is divided into a different category which is a task event or note and each one of these items on the list is denoted by a different symbol so you have the dot the circle and the dash so the idea is that rather than having to think through all these things constantly what you're doing is you're just you're constantly bringing things out of your mind and writing them down on paper so you can actually clearly see your thought. You're not necessarily contemplating every item, but you're thinking about the information you're getting. And in real time, you're distilling down just what matters. You're keeping every one of these entries super short. And then you also have the ability to categorize them again as a task, event, or note. So later on, as you're reading through your notes, which you will do as part of the practice, you're able to very quickly be able to digest all of the different things that are taking up your time and your energy. So every day you're unloading your mind, you're, you're decluttering your thoughts. And then once a month you go through the previous month and you create this thing called a monthly log. And the monthly log is essentially a, a calendar paired with another task list, except this task list is much more intentional. These are the things that are the priorities for the month, as well as all the things that you didn't get done in the previous month. And this is where the practice starts coming in. Like I think that 
To-do lists are great, and there are a lot of wonderful apps for keeping to-do lists. But the problem with a to-do list is it can become an easy way for us to hoard responsibilities. You can have endless to-do lists. I did it myself, and that's why I moved away from it. And the trick that I discovered, essentially, is the best way to deal with a to-do list is to be constantly be curating it. And we do this through two processes. One is daily reflection, where we sit down with our notebook in the morning and the evening, and we go through our lists and ask ourselves, what matters? What, vi- what is vital? And what if I never did this thing? And so on a daily, you have form a daily routine of whittling away your responsibilities and becoming very mindful about what you're letting into your life. And then at the end of the month, you go through it again, and inevitably there'll be things that you didn't get around to, and you ask yourself the same question, but now you have the additional friction of having to rewrite it. So everything that isn't done, you have to rewrite over again into your month. And you don't even need to question, but if something isn't worth the moment that it takes to rewrite it, chances are it's not adding a lot of value to your life. So the friction of having to rewrite it can very quickly and organically weed out your to-do list. So you have the daily log for you know your day-to-day. Your monthly log is a chance to take a step back, take a mental inventory of the things that you're letting into your life. Um, you also have a future log, which is designed to organize the things that are months or years ahead. And then you have, um, well, I guess then people are going to start asking themselves, well, how am I going to keep track of all these different things that, I'm, that I have in my notebook, which is what the index is for. The index helps you find different content inside your notebook. And that's really important because, again, the bullet journal system is modular. And here's where... I guess the, 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 one of the most effective ideas in the bullet journal system comes into play. It's designed for people to design their own collections as well. Like my life is not like yours. I don't know what it's like to be a mother or a doctor or so forth, but the system lays this foundation that allows people to design their own techniques and plug them into this framework. And through the index, you can keep all your different collections really clear and straight. So maybe one of your collections is a fitness tracker or a fertility tracker, or you're dealing, you're managing a project or a birthday or, you know, set up your own gym log, whatever it is that you need, the bullet journal lays the foundation for you to have it. So it becomes this evolving tool set. And that's essentially the the foundation of the bullet journal it's, it's the, as a system it becomes whatever you need it to be and the practice is about figuring out what it is that you need it to be right it's not the same tool to all people and figuring out how it can best serve you is part of the practice and you figure that out by sitting down with your notebook every day and starting to ask yourself very basic small questions it's like why am i working on this how is it making me feeling? You know, what could I do better? What could I do less of? Just really these, these tiny little introspective questions that over time help you form the routine of self-learning. It gives you an opportunity to check in with yourself in a, in a very practical way, right? It's not about like, what is the meaning of life? But, I'm like, but you can ask yourself, like, is this project something that I'm interested in? Am I doing all that I can do? And over time, you start thinking a little bit differently about what you let into your life and how you start responding to the things that, responding to the responsibilities that you have. Mm, wow. Wow. Uh, well, I want to ask you about one quote in particular, and, and this really struck me because uh, I remember both this quote and the story you told about it, that you said, our memories are unreliable. We often trick ourselves into believing things about our experiences that are biased and inaccurate. Studies suggest that our recollection of how we felt can eagerly differ from the way an experience actually made us feel. And then you supplemented that with a story about the guy who went on a date uh, with somebody who ended up breaking up with him. And you actually showed that he didn't enjoy the date. And it just got me thinking about, you know, so many dates, which, which I, I, you know, was so distraught over the fact that things didn't work out. And I kind of wonder if I wouldn't have been had I gone through this practice. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's that very clear example, but there, there, in every experience that we have, there's, there's a complexity to it, Right. The, the, even in the good times, there are bad moments or bad things. You have the best meal of your life, and then 
like the the dessert was disgusting, right? <laughs> Chances are you'll remember that part. You'll remember that part of 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 the meal because like you may have responded to it the, the most, you know, same thing like with a job, you know, maybe you got fired and you're like, Oh, I had this terrible job for three years. It's like, well, no, like that job was actually pretty good until the last four months when the new guy took over. Right. And, and we, and, and the opposite can be true too. something can be really bad. Like for example, being really distraught about, for example, the example you gave, which is, you break up with somebody and you're like, Oh, this was terrible. Or I was broken up with, you know, like this was this major loss. And then if you look at the reality of the situation, it's like, no, you were like, maybe you weren't really that into the person or the person wasn't that nice to you or, you know, take your pick. I think that it, by having a record of your experience overall, it allows us to have a significantly more balanced perspective of how things actually happened. Because generally speaking, we always, from what I read, we ha- tend to glom on to, I would say, the, the most intense parts of an experience, right? So like a good meal, you're like, oh, this is really good. Let's say it's a B plus, but this dessert was so bad, you know, like this, you know, it's so terrible, right? That, that is, that is, I guess that that part of the experience is most accentuated. So when you think back to it, you know, that's something that, that might be the only piece that remains. So having an objective record or as objective, objective as it can be, right? Because, you know, you can get into, you can be very meta, helps you have a more balanced experience. I mean, as, as a species, we're designed to always look for the negative, right? We have our negativity bias. So a lot of times we can remember things significantly worse than they really are or be scared of things happening that you may have already experienced and it wasn't so bad. So I think it, once you start like reading over your journals or um, keeping an accurate record of your life, you're also committing reality to paper in a different way. So every day you're like, okay, this was good and this was good and this worked out, you know, and, and then by writing it out, you're actually giving it a moment. You're thinking about it and that's significantly more time than just having the experiencing and letting it go because you're recalling it into your memory much shorter, right? It's like, oh, I had a, I met up with my friends, we had a really pleasant time. You know, the dessert was lousy, but all of a sudden you have a more balanced perspective of what happened. And uh, I think that's really important. And it also starts teaching you to try to pay more attention to the good things because you're like, oh, this was this really terrible experience. And you go back, you're like, Actually, it really wasn't. This is a story that I'm telling myself. This wasn't the reality of the situation. Like, how often am I telling myself this story? And especially when it comes to being negative, which, you know, especially when things aren't that great, we we can color our experiences negatively very easily. And when we become aware of that, it helps, you know, at least makes you aware that that's happening. And that can be the first step. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become like you know, captain optimism or something, but at least all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the negative constantly. Maybe I should like take a step back and see what else there is. And uh, over time that has at least allowed me to enjoy things better. It allows me to get better at checking myself. And it seems that that is true for a lot of people who start doing this. So I want to ask you about one last quote uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, this really struck me, particularly for a couple of reasons, which I'll mention to you. You said, by identifying what it is, what is out of our control and letting go, we can reclaim our attention and reinvest it into things that are. Focus on doing everything within your control to help something succeed. There's nothing more that can be asked of us. More importantly, there is nothing more that we can ask of ourselves. And the reason this struck me in particular was because I remember getting an email from your publicist saying, uh, are you interested in talking to writer? By the way, the book just hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I had a book come out earlier this year uh, that in a lot of ways failed to live up to a lot of my expectations. And you know, and the, ama- the amazing thing is the entire message of the book was virtually what you just said in this quote. Uh, so I wonder how you live with that duality of being an artist who cares about your work and wants to see it reach people, but also recognizing that so much of this is out of your control. 
one day at a time, honestly. And I've always found the most helpful way about going about it is just to work. Like the expectation I try to set for myself is to do the best job I can, fully aware of that it might all go nowhere. And I remind myself of that pretty much every day. And that's, that might seem very pessimistic, but I found it to be really liberating because all of a sudden I can focus on the work. Like I can't control if the book's going to last, if it's going to be successful, but what I can control today right now is doing the best I possibly can to write this book, use the skills that I have, use the time that I have. And when I, when I lessen the worry about what may be, all of a sudden I have just much more focus in the present moment. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this. It's like, I'm not a Vulcan. I can't just like shut off my emotions, but I, I, I find myself often checking myself, right? It's like, Oh, I wonder if they're going to like this. I'm wondering if it's like, okay, fine. Stop. What can you do right now? What you can do right now is just reread this again. Try that sentence better. Is this, you know, it, again, it just comes back to doing the work as best as you possibly can. And I don't know if this was your experience, but my own, I would say one of the things that was most frustrating in the writing process is when I had an idea and I knew that I could, ex that it could be expressed better, but I just didn't have the ability yet, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe that, maybe that time will be tomorrow and maybe it'll be 14 years from now. So like that, that's, <laughs> that to me was, was what I wanted to worry about. Like, how can I make it the best I can now? Yeah. And, uh, you know, once, once the more you kind of make that your mantra, the, the, the more helpful it is because it occupies more of your mind. Not that I didn't have worries. And then, you know, obviously I want this to help as many people as possible, but as you said, that's completely out of my control. So I just try to remind myself, like, is worrying about that serving me? Is it useful? And the answer is almost always no. Right. And it just, it, 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 it helps me prevent that from spiraling out of control so I can become more present and come back. Like, how can I be useful now? What can I do to be useful now? And the answer is always like spend more time with the work or try to figure out how to fix that sentence. That's what you should be worrying about right now. And it's, you know, it's, it's a battle. It's not something that I'm perfect at, but with practice, I, I catch myself more frequently doing it than I did before when I start to like, worry about the future or have anxiety about what's going to happen. It's like, I don't know. I'd rather focus my worry and anxiety towards the things that are right in front of me that I can actually, I can actually impact somehow. Wow. Um, well, this has been incredible, really, really just poetic, beautiful, thought provoking. Uh, so I want to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, it's an interesting question because you know, on one hand, everything has been done in one way, shape or another. But I think that we can use our uniqueness to synthesize things in a new way. And sometimes we synthesize things in a way that have never been seen before or something that, you know, helps other people take a step that they may not have otherwise. And that's something that would be unmistakable when you, when you have that experience of running across something that makes you stop, that makes you wonder that, you know, makes you smile or whatever like that. That's, that's unmistakable. And I feel like the ability to be able to do that is, is it, I think would be the goal for most creatives, right. To be able to, Leverage your uniqueness in such a way that you make people stop and think. And I think as soon as they do, that, that, that's, that's an unmistakable feeling.
that's that's the best I got. <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with listeners. This has been one of my favorite conversations of the entire year. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Sure. Uh, very simple, bulletjournal.com or at bulletjournal on most social networks. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.